Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm a woman of science, and you are a man of non-sci... nonsense, actually. Thought that I wasn't a nerd was duly horrifying. But then I remembered that I had memorized all the known last words of American presidents. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. This week, a conversation with presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's pretty much the original Nerdette. This was so exciting. We talked about her new book, The Bully Pulpit, that's all about Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the golden age of journalism. Muckraking, guys. Muckraking. Yeah. And Nerdette contributor Rebecca Polson made a Teddy Roosevelt-themed cocktail. I wonder if you have to stir it with a big stick. (laughs) (laughs) But what's that sound? It's sort of breaking dinosaur-related news. You guys, this is pretty exciting stuff. We would have been anxious to talk to whatever reporter was tasked with the awesome assignment of learning more about the brand new dinosaur discovered by scientists at the Field Museum in Chicago last week. And lucky for us, it was our own Nerdette contributor, Lauren Chuljan. Lauren? I touched a dinosaur bone. Lauren, explain to us how and when and why this happened. You weren't out at a dig. Last week, I believe it was, the Field Museum's Tyrannosaurus Rex Sue got her biannual bath which basically involves a feather duster and a vacuum switched in reverse so you don't, you know, like blow her over because she is 67 million years old. Wow. Yeah. So because I did that, then there was another dinosaur story that came up recently about how the Field Museum discovered an entirely new species of dinosaur. What? You say the Field Museum discovered it, but it's someone who works with the Field Museum and like goes out west on digs, right? Yeah. So it was Pete McAvicky, one of the curators of dinosaurs at the field, and he and a team of paleontologists they went out to Utah and found in 2008 for the first time, and they found the hip bone of what they're now calling the Seats Micarorum. How long did it take you to figure out how to pronounce that one? A little while. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's kind of funny because Pete was saying, you know, usually they say Asaurus, and then for a long time that's how they named dinosaurs. But this one is actually named for two reasons. One, Seats is named because... The Seats, back in the Ute tribal legends, and the Ute tribe is the Indian tribe that used to live where they found this thing. I'm familiar with that term from crossword puzzles. Uh, A Seats was a man-eating monster. Whoa. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an inclination as to what this guy was probably like. Then the second part, Mikarorum, is the plural of Meeker for the Meeker family. They're big donors to the Field Museum, and they actually funded the fellowship that one of the other people who was on the dig who found the thing, was on at the time. Whoa, so Whoa. if I get rich enough, I could make people named dinosaurs Can you? After what me? a perk. I mean, if we give out tote bags, these people give you a name dinosaur after <laughs> you. <laughs> so you got to touch its toe? Yeah, this was awesome. So I went to the Field Museum that day because I figured, I mean, I want to see these things, right? They dug up about 20% of the Seats. They don't have its skull. They're still trying to figure out if the teeth that they found actually match up with this dinosaur. 
So I saw some vertebrae. I saw the hip. It was pretty wild. And the toe was about a pound and a half. And he was just holding it out in front of me. And then I was looking at it and I was like, oh my gosh, can I hold that? And I actually think we have a little bit of a, a tape of that if you guys want to hear it. So I heard that the uh, toe bone, there's, it's a really heavy one. Or so I was, what's up with yeah, that? This is, That's uh, the toe. This is one of the knuckles from the from the toe, the second toe. I can hold it. Yeah, you can hold it. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. You know, it's about as big and twice as fat as a regular stapler or something like that. I, I wouldn't even know how to. I think, I think that's a good. That's pretty accurate. So. Wow, that is pretty heavy for a toe. I can only imagine. Yeah. Awesome. As you can see, I was pretty excited about this. I could not contain myself. Stapler toes. Oh, stapler toes, I call this dinosaur. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. You want to hear some more facts about the Seahawks? Um, Yes, please. So I mentioned before that they were digging in 98 million year old rock. And the reason I bring that up is because that hits around the Cretaceous time period. That's 100 million years to 66 million years ago. And why that's relevant is not just because, whoa, cool. I'd like to know what dinosaurs were around during that time, but... There was a big hole in what they called the fossil record. Scientists didn't really know which was the big meat-eating predator on the block at that time. And now we've learned that the sea otz was actually the meat-eating predator of the age. And in fact, Tyrannosaurus was a species. It wasn't until 30 million years later that they became Tyrannosaurus rex. But that growth was stunted because Seatz was on the block and you can only have one big bully dinosaur. And because they were the big predator and they were bullying all the other dinosaurs, Tyrannosaurus stayed small. That's awesome. Cool, right? Do we know, did this dinosaur have the funny stubby arms like the T-Rex? Yeah, it did. I think they think that they were a little longer than T-Rex. T-Rexes were virtually unusable. But I think if I remember what Pete was saying correctly, there were little arms but they also might have had some plumage. Ooh, Can you imagine? Yeah. So, and just also to compare it to the T-Rex in another way, a T-Rex is about, I think Sue, they say, is about nine tons and around 42 feet long. So most T-Rex, I think they estimate, were about 40 feet long. But Seats was a little skinnier. So Seats was 30 feet long and could have weighed three to four tons. Now, that could change. It could be a little bit bigger because the bones they found were of a juvenile Seats. But for the most part, I mean, that's a pretty big dinosaur if you think about it. But a little leaner and meaner and maybe with better arms. Yes. Yes. Okay. Which good for them, right? <laughs> Doris Kearns Goodwin is the presidential historian, if you ask me. She started by helping LBJ write his memoir. She wrote Team of Rivals, the book that inspired... Some say Obama's cabinet choices in his first term and also Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. You know, I actually heard recently that she's in a book club with Barack Obama. How amazing is that? We used her expertise to help us learn what Taft and Roosevelt nerded out about, things that are central to her new book, The Bully Pulpit. And turns out she's not just a nerd about presidential history. Can you tell me what your relationship is with baseball? It is irrational passion, no question, from childhood. I mean, my father taught me how to keep score when I was six years old. Brooklyn Dodgers was my team. I grew up in New York. He'd come home at the end of the day. I would have recorded the history of that afternoon's game. And I would tell him every single play of every inning that had taken place. And at first, I'd be so excited, I would blurt out, the Dodgers won or the Dodgers lost, which took the drama of this two-hour telling away. So I finally <laughs> learned, I think, how to tell a story from beginning to middle to end. And I think that's where my love of history 
and my hopefully ability to tell a story came from. He never told me then that all of this was actually described in great detail in the sports pages of the newspapers the next day. I thought without me, he wouldn't even know what happened to the Brooklyn Dodgers. <laughs> and for years afterwards, I mean, eventually when the Dodgers abandoned us and I went to Boston to graduate school, I became an equally rational Red Sox fan. But I could not be at a game without keeping score for years and years and years. I have a dear friend who has a clipboard and a Cubs pencil, and he keeps track of every pitch of every Cubs game. I understand that impulse. <laughs> what else did you nerd out about as a kid? I think I nerded out on reading novels. I can still remember that my best friend next door and I, on the lawn in the back of our house, which was a small little patch of a lawn, read Gone with the Wind together. And just the idea of sharing that book with my friend. And she then had a bedroom right across from me. Our driveways were so thin that we could talk about what we read that day at night when we were supposed to be asleep. (laughs) So I think, you know, reading... And then also in those days, it was the 50s, we played on the street all day. So unlike today, you know, you just let you out on the street and your mothers would call you home at 6 o'clock when it was time for dinner. So we played stickball, we played punchball, we played, you know, hopscotch, (laughs) all these things that makes me sound like I'm 700 years old. (laughs) But it was a great way to grow up, to just have all that time to imagine games rather than just all the play dates that people have now. With the narrow driveways, were you able to do the cans with the string between? That seems like you could have almost made that work. We absolutely did. <laughs> oh, that's so no, cool. I was, always wished that I yeah. lived close enough to someone to be able to do that. Yeah, you know, it's really funny when I go back now. I grew up in Raffles Center, Long Island, and the houses are small. And as I say, they're right next to each other, and the lawns are so little. And you realize, what do you need the big lawn for? You know, it was like we had an extended family on our street. There were so many kids. It was post-World War II era. So people had moved to the suburbs from New York. And we were all one giant family. No doors were locked. You could just run into your friends' houses, and and you really could feel like you belonged to everybody else. What got you interested in government and politics and all these things as a youngster? Yeah, well, interestingly, it wasn't politics when I was young. But what happened is my parents took me, because we lived in Long Island, to Teddy Roosevelt's house at Sagamore Hill, and I went to Franklin Roosevelt's house at Hyde Park. And I remember I was pretty young then, too, And I somehow thought that he couldn't be dead because he had left his glasses on his desk (laughs) and because Fallow's leash was on the chair. So I thought Fallow would be running around. And it was the first time I really began to think that you could possibly bring them back to life by knowing enough about them. So I started reading about them. And then I had a great history teacher in high school. It could have become history of other things, in fact, had it not been for working for LBJ when I was 24 years old. And then suddenly the fascination with the presidency developed. How did you get away with writing such a scathing piece about LBJ and still keep your job with him? It was pretty strange that he didn't (laughs) kick me out of the program. I mean, what had happened is I'd already won this White House fellowship. We had a dance at the White House. He did dance with me. He did whisper he wanted me to be assigned directly to him in the White House. But then this article came out that I'd written prior to this with a friend. I was in the anti-war movement, How to Remove Lyndon Johnson from Power was the title. So I thought not only would he kick me out of the program, but he might can the entire program because he could do things like that. Surprisingly, he just said, oh, bring her down here for a year. And if I can't win her over, no one can. Hmm. So it wasn't right away that I went to the White House. And there was only one cabinet member, the Labor Department guy, who was willing to take me because I was pretty damaged goods but <laughs> as far as they were concerned because they'd be afraid of LBJ. But then he asked me to come and work for him in the White House after a few months in the Labor Department. I ended up going down to the ranch, helping him on his memoirs. He never changed my mind about the war. But he did change my mind about him, and I felt more empathetic, and he was so sad at the end of his life, you couldn't help but feel 
a sense of vulnerability in him. And that began a career of studying dead presidents. <laughs> so that's pretty nerdy, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm interested in this thing you wrote and it being not a cast-off thing, but come here, I'll convince you. Sounds like that is a bit what the relationship between the press and Roosevelt was like in your new book, The Bully Pulpit, a different relationship than we have now between our White House press corps and our presidents. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think what made Roosevelt's presidency successful was that he had really close friendships with a lot of the press, but he was okay about the fact that they would criticize him from time to time. Otherwise, they would have lost their integrity. I mean, there's this famous moment when one of the journalists wrote an article about his book on the Rough Riders in which he said Teddy was so egocentric that it was as if he was the only person in the Spanish-American War. He should have called it alone in Cuba. And everybody <laughs> laughed all over the country. And Teddy writes to him and says, I regret to tell you that my wife and family are delighted with your review of my book. Now you owe me one. In fact, he was in Chicago, the guy. He said, I want you to come and meet with me. And so it was a different time from now. But they did retain their integrity by being willing to criticize him, and he accepted it. But he needed them. He needed them to reach the public and to mobilize the public against the old guard that was in the Congress who wouldn't pass his legislation unless the people got aroused. That relationship with the press is a really interesting theme, but I think also, as you mentioned, that idea of really getting the people riled up about a cause is something that just doesn't seem to happen anymore, especially when you think about, you know, reading 50,000 word magazine articles about these issues and people really becoming mobilized. Is that what's really missing these days? Is it just the attention span? Is it complacency? What do you think? I think it's a couple of different things. The magazine that I focused on, McClure, is the most important progressive magazine of the decade. They gave their writers staff positions. They could work for two years without having to produce a word, huge expense accounts, and then comes these stories. Ida Tarbell, who is just an extraordinary woman, who becomes the crusader and the Joan of Arc of her time by unmasking what Standard Oil was doing and becoming a monopoly using all sorts of unfair illegal means. And in fact, once she got into the press with her 12-part series, a regulation was passed on corporations and they undid Standard Oil. They broke it up into Mobil and Exxon and Amoco. So what an extraordinary achievement she had. And all the other reporters there felt the same way. And later in their lives, when they looked back on this period, they felt they had had a mission and a call, and nothing had quite equaled that later on. And I know there's journalists today who would want to have that same impact. And we have things out there like ProPublica, which has an investigative reporting group of journalists that then study their subjects and give them to other newspapers, and they've won some awards for it. But we just need a lot more than what we have now. Let's talk a little more about how awesome Ida Tarbell was, since this is the Nerdat podcast. <laughs> We're talking turn-of-the-century female investigative journalist, boys club of all boys clubs, Absolutely. to be a newsman at the time. How did she end up able to do this? What's so extraordinary about her is that she grows up in Pennsylvania. Her father was a teacher but then became an independent oil producer, and then he got swallowed up by Standard Oil. So that piece of her was always there. But then she watched her mother, who she knew that her mother wanted to have higher education. She'd been a teacher, but she had to spend her time caring for the family because especially of the economic problems. So she, at the age of 14, prayed to God that she would never take a husband. She was the sole woman in her freshman class at Allegheny. And then she graduated way at the top of her class, if not the top, if I remember right. And then she took a job with a local um, magazine. And she was doing managing editing for them, but she saved money because she dreamed of going to Paris and becoming a biographer of a figure, a woman figure in the French Revolution. 
and she told her boss she was leaving, and he, he made a remark she would never forget. And he said to her, how are you going to support yourself when you're in Paris? She said, well, I'm going to write, of course. You're not a writer, he said. You will starve. <laughs> I, he, she was so glad to see him later in life. Anyway, she goes to Paris, mm-hmm. no money hardly except what she saved. She's writing freelance articles for newspapers at home to support herself going to the library to write this dreamed-of book. McClure, this crazy, wonderful founder of McClure's magazine, reads one of the articles, is in Paris, climbs 80 steps up to see her, and he says, I've only got 10 minutes. I, I have to talk to you. I'm starting a new magazine. They talk for three hours. And then he finally says, i got to leave. I have to catch the train. Can you lend me $40? She had $40 saved in her drawer to go on a vacation. She gives it to him thinking she may never see it again. But he sent her a check the next day. And then she becomes really the mother hen of the group. She was extraordinary. I mean, when she wrote her John D. Rockefeller series that helped produce this mobilized feeling about Standard Oil, there was a newspaper clipping that said John D. Rockefeller was looking for a husband for her so that he could send her around the world on an extended honeymoon. <laughs> but I really, really respected her, and she broke every barrier at the time. So Doris Kearns Goodwin, you and I both owe a lot to her, I would say. Without a question. No, I mean, and the other person we owe a lot to, one of the people that I wrote about as well, is Eleanor Roosevelt. Because when Eleanor had her press conferences as first lady, she made a rule that only female journalists could come to her press conferences. So all over the country, stuffy publishers had to hire their first female journalists. whole generation got their start because of Eleanor's press conferences. I knew I liked her. Of course you do. (laughs) (laughs) If we're starting to talk about Hillary Clinton again, is running for president. It's bound to come up, even though she's done a lot in the years since, that eight years in the White House, what should that count as in terms of experience? It's certainly a chunk of her history, her resume. And you talk a lot in the bully pulpit about the two first ladies of Taft and Roosevelt. Who were they? How did they impact their presidents? Well, sometimes we make a mistake by looking at the political part of the first lady when we know from human relationships that the relationship they have with their husband is central. So, for example, Edith Roosevelt decided when she was first lady that she was not a public personage. All she wanted was to give him a home and a sanctuary from the craziness of all of his activities. And that was in part because when she grew up as a little girl, she had had a wealthy father. His business failed. He became an alcoholic. They had to leave one house for another to another. And so once she finally got married to Teddy, whom she had loved from the time she was a child, then she decided that most important thing was to provide this safe harbor for him. And she said a woman's name should be in the press only on two times when they get married and when they're buried. But she was indispensable to him because of all of his manic energy. She gave him that family, the children, and he found refreshment and renewal in the family. Nellie Taft, by contrast, growing up in Cincinnati from the time she was an adolescent, dreamed of doing something on her own. She was way ahead of her time. She loved going to the working-class district of Cincinnati, having beer with laborers. She wanted to go to college, but her father sent her brothers to Harvard and Yale, no higher education for her. So she taught for a number of years, and her mother said, you'll never get into society, you'll never get married if you keep teaching. And she then thinks she won't get married, too, like Ida had. But she meets young Will Taft, who adores her, and values her independence and makes her his partner. And indeed, her love of politics is what spurred him away from being a judge, which is what he really only wanted to be. They're like campaign managers together. They go through speeches together. When he finally becomes president, it's the happiest day of her life. And then she's a real activist first lady in contrast to Edith. She worked on conditions of working women. She brought the cherry trees to Washington. She created a municipal free park with free concerts, brought all sorts of people to the White House and I think would have become somebody we remembered like Eleanor Roosevelt and may have changed his presidency too because what happened is two months after 
his inauguration, when the New York Times had just written a story about how she was the most activist first lady in decades, she had a stroke and she was never able to speak in continuous language again. And it was just heartbreaking for him. So the impact on him is huge. It shadowed his whole presidency. They said they'd never seen, he looked like a stricken animal. And he missed her enormously. He could train her to say, glad to see you or happy to be here so she could attend reception. She didn't want to be put away into the upstairs of the White House. So she was really brave in that respect. So what were Roosevelt and Taft nerds about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Taft, I suppose, I don't know whether it's nerdy, but the thing he loved (laughs) more than any was golf. And that was the one thing he could do, given his large frame. He could play golf. But Teddy worried about him playing golf when he was running for president. Teddy wanted him to be president to succeed him. And he thought that golf looked like a rich man's game to the, 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 to the working of class. Time. The windsurfing of its time. The windsurfing of its time. So he said, stop <laughs> playing golf. Um, he also liked baseball, which, of course, I adore. He threw out the first ball. In fact, there are mascots at the Washington Nationals team now. They've had these presidential mascots for years, and Teddy and Lincoln and Washington were ones, and they added Taft this year. So they have races all the time, and one wins or one loses. So I had my picture taken with the Teddy and Taft mascots <laughs> making them hold hands. They are enormous. But it was funny. But he liked baseball, so I liked that part about him. But Teddy, just his exercising was crazy. I mean, boxing wrestling, taking hikes in Rock Creek Park where you're climbing over rocks, you're taking your clothes off and going over streams. Um, I mean, physical exercise was really almost an obsession with him. But the one thing he also did was that he loved reading. And he said books were companions that once met are never forgotten. And he had a book with him everywhere he went. And he said that leaders need to know human nature and you get it best by poetry or prose. It's nice to think about someone who's dealing with policy all day long having a poem at the end of the night in their bedside table. Absolutely. In fact, he was in the middle of a huge coal strike, the biggest strike in in the history of the country at that time. And he writes the Librarian of Congress and he says, can you send me a book on ancient Mediterranean races in Assyria? I need to think about anything else but the coal strike. And then he wrote him back and said, it was totally irrelevant what I was reading, but in that case, it was even better. (laughs) And he was also a birder. He loved birds. He loved, you know, hunting. The teddy bear was named after him. And so he's a many-sided creature. And certainly a passionate person. If we're defining nerd as just extreme passion. <laughs> I think he, he was probably the happiest president that I've ever studied. He just loved, he loved being president. He loved being in the center of things. His daughter Alice said he would have loved being a bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral and the baby at the baptism. <laughs> but he really had his energy people couldn't understand. I mean, somebody likened it to Niagara Falls. He was a force of nature, partly because he exercised so much maybe, but partly because I think he may have drank, they claimed, 40 cups of coffee a day. He gave <laughs> Maxwell House the slogan, oh good to the very last drop. <laughs> You mentioned a president being sort of proud and open about the fact that they read poetry. I feel in our current environment, we've created a culture that would sort of mock the idea that someone who wants to have a very important, difficult job is an intellectual. We hear professorial as a bad thing in a candidate's run. Why are we willing to have someone we'd rather have a beer with than who could be our professor make such important decisions? I agree. I mean, I think that's partly what the celebrity culture has done. It's partly what our media culture has done. And it makes no sense to say that you want the guy that you can just talk to. I mean, he does need a president to speak in language that you can understand. I mean, Teddy would say about himself that sometimes his Harvard buddies teased him that his language was homely and not as sophisticated as it should be. But that didn't mean that he himself wasn't reading sophisticated literature. He had no problem 
projecting whatever he was doing to everybody. But he also had the luxury of being this big game hunter at the same time as he's reading poetry. So I suppose that helps. <laughs> yeah, the big stick. Yes, Nobody makes fun st- of you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but your, your point is well taken, too. I mean, we criticize our presidents when they go on vacation as if they're not supposed to relax and replenish their energy somehow. I mean, they need to do something other than what they're doing in order to look back at what they're doing with some perspective. But we get mad at them if they go away for a week. Now, Teddy used to go away for weeks at a time. They all used to go away in the summer continually, and the government would shut down because it was so hot in Washington. (laughs) Maybe we'd be better off with that now. Let's take away their air conditioning, and they'll get the same amount done. It's fine. Exactly right. Thanks to Doris Kearns Goodwin. Her book, The Bully Pulpit, is out now. Trisha. Trisha. What? Weird old letter alert. Weird old letter alert. There are so many alerts in this episode. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. (laughs) So what happened was I told my dad about how we interviewed Doris Kearns Goodwin. Right. Turns out my great-great-grandfather, James Protus Piggott, was friends with Taft. Actually really good friends to the extent that when my great-great-grandfather died, it was Taft who read the eulogy at his funeral. Wow. Isn't that nuts? So my dad tells me this and he says, yeah, we even have this letter that Taft wrote to your great, great grandfather. I'm like, what? So he takes a picture of it and sends it over. And it's a pretty funny letter. My dear Protus, I have your note. I have already accepted an invitation to go to Hadley's, but I shall be very glad to dine with you while I am in New Haven. I am afraid that my diet is contrary to the Lenten observance for it is chiefly roast beef. I have also accepted an invitation to dinner with the Connecticut Civil Service Reform Association in Waterbury for Saturday, April 21st. Very sincerely yours, William Taft. Thanks to our buddy from the Strange Brews podcast, Andrew Gill, for that dramatic reading. A diet that consists chiefly of roast beef. Doris Kearns Goodwin mentioned that Taft often talked about his diet, and here it is. We've got it in living proof. I think it's evidence that he was on the Atkins diet. (laughs) Exactly. Cocktails before homework? Yes. If a diet of solely roast beef isn't your style, maybe this cocktail from our booze nerd Rebecca Polson will get you in the the turn-of-the-century spirit. The bully pulpit spans one of the most exciting times in American cocktail consumption. The New York Times reported Taft causing quite a stir in St. Louis when he drank a Bronx cocktail before breakfast while touring the Midwest. The Bronx combines orange with two types of vermouth and is really kind of gross, so that's not what we'll be making here today. The travels of Teddy Roosevelt inspired barkeeps to create equally strange concoctions. One fairly Baroque Roosevelt cocktail combined spirits from five countries the president had visited and had to be served in a Venetian glass. While it had been rumored that Roosevelt was a heavy drinker, he went to great lengths to refute that claim, going so far as to sue a Michigan newspaper editor for libel. Roosevelt claimed to drink so rarely that he offered the jury this inventory of drinks, quoted in the May 28, 1913 edition of the New York Times. I have never drunk a cocktail or highball in my life, with the exceptions hereafter noted. I never drank whiskey or brandy except under the advice of a physician. I never have drunk beer, nor do I drink red wine. The only wines that I have drunk have been white wines, Madeira, Champagne, or very occasionally a glass of sherry. Mint juleps I very rarely drink, 
At the White House, we have a mint bed, and I should think that on average, I may have drunk a half dozen mint juleps a year. So instead of a pre-prohibition cocktail that Roosevelt and Taft might have enjoyed together, today we're making a modern classic that honors both Teddy's fondness for the occasional sip of a mint julep, and the role that Cuba and the Spanish-American War played in both men's careers. The Old Cuban was invented by Audrey Saunders of New York's Pegu Club. To start, we'll lightly muddle mint into three-quarters of an ounce of lime juice and an ounce of simple syrup. Then we'll add an ounce and a half of aged rum, I like Banks or Florida Cagna here, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. We'll shake over ice and strain it into a cocktail glass. Top with champagne to fill the glass and enjoy. Okay, nerds, your homework this week is to read Doris Kearns Goodwin's new book, The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. We also got some really great homework from Doris. Now that we know she's a big baseball fan, she's got some words of wisdom for those of you who aren't necessarily as into the sport. Well, I guess since I love baseball so much, if somebody doesn't love baseball, I would hope that when spring comes, they will go to a game and develop that passion because it's the kind of thing when you go onto the field and that green grass shows, you don't worry about anything else in your life. You just think about the game. So especially for women, more and more women, I think, are loving sports right now. It's so great to watch when I go to the Fenway Park and they have these pictures from the old days, all men with hats, no women at all, and now so many women are there. But if somebody hasn't got a sport love like that, it can develop in a minute. So I would say the homework is when spring comes, go to a baseball game and maybe you'll become irrational like me. Thanks to Doris Kearns Goodwin for that homework. I also am an irrational fan of baseball and I will get Greta Johnson to a baseball game yet. We'll make it happen, but only with the help of Rebecca Polson and her boozy concoctions. Thanks to her also this week. And to WBEZ's Lauren Shuljin, dinosaur correspondent? I think she should put that on her business card. Thanks for listening this week on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Throw us some stars if you're feeling generous. And we at Nerd Up Podcast have a way that you can skip Black Friday and Cyber Monday if you want, because right now, right this very minute, the Nerd Up Podcast swag store is open for business. Check it out. We've got everything from footy pajamas to flasks. Head on over to nerduppodcast.com backslash shop. You'll be taken to our Cafe Press store where you can get just about anything with our Nerdette logo on it. About 20% of that item price goes to help keep us from getting scurvy or something. Special thanks this week to Joe Dassault for engineering our conversation with Doris Kearns Goodwin. Also to Rob Wildebor for his best presidential impression in our cocktail segment, even though it was the wrong president. And to our pal Andrew Gill from the Strange Brews podcast for the dramatic reading of the letter from William Howard Taft to Greta's great-great-grandfather. You're listening to New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. You also heard tracks by Chris Zabrinsky, Mauricio, and James Scott from the Free Music Archive. Dear Hallmark. Happy Thanksgiving, nerds. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.